Uh, the Sunday school can go out. Praise the Lord. So today we are starting a fresh book, the letter of Peter. Yes. So uh, are you excited? Uh, I said last week that uh, we're going to start preaching through the letter of the, the whole letter of Peter, and it's good if you sit down and read it through once, you know, from beginning to end. Just read through the whole letter. Have you done that? If you haven't, I'm not going to hold it against you, because I did. I did it so many times. I can't come stand and preach here about something I don't know. If I've got nothing to give you, I mean, if I invite you to my house for, for a dinner, you expect some food, don't you, Matthew? You want to sit up there and get some food? Praise the Lord. And uh, so we're starting with Peter. Uh, and what a wonderful letter. It's got so much in it. If you read through this, he's talking about you and me, and he's talking about things that we are going through. One Peter, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to just go in and start reading from the beginning. We're going to read a few verses, but then we're going to come back and do some work in verse 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he writes this to a specific audience. And to us, I'll explain that. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Can you see how many weighty theological things he's addressing in that first part? He's talking about the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The elect. There is a whole teaching about the elect. If you are safe as a child of God, it is your responsibility to start studying the Scriptures and to find out about this according to the foreknowledge of God. Oh, it's so exciting when you start opening up the Scriptures and you find these things. He talks about sanctification of the Spirit. Can you see it's a capital letter Spirit? What does that mean? It's the Holy Spirit. And the word sanctification means to be set apart. And there's a whole doctrine around that that you and I need to know. As we grow up to be, you know, as we are baby born, uh, born again as a small baby, we grow up. That little Michael lying there in, in, in the pram at the back, he's going to eat a little bit more solid food. This is the solid food that he's talking about. In verse 3 he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and what does not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And again, if we look at this, my dear friends, there's a whole doctrine around begotten us. What does it mean? Begotten us again. If you open up your Bible and you read these words, what does it mean to you? We're going to study it in this church. We're going to open it up so that you know what it means. Begotten again means once you were His, 
Then you were lost, and now He's found you again. But it's not as simple as that. There is a price to be paid for getting you back again. Because you became the slave of sin. And if you're a slave of somebody, who owns you? The taskmaster owns you. So somebody needs to go to the taskmaster and pay a price so that he can get you. That is begotten. Once we get there, that's a fantastic study we're going to look into. And then what about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in that? Do you actually believe how he was resurrected from the dead? He wasn't resuscitated. You know what resuscitation means? We see it happening in our day. Somebody gets an heart attack, they, they fall next to the road, somebody else comes and they resuscitate him back to life. This wasn't that. This was a resurrection. He was dead for three days. Dead, kaput. And the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And this is stuff, dear friends, which now, he uses a word there, which is, makes us joyful. That makes me joyful. I mean, tell me a joke, I laugh for a few seconds, but tell me about Christ and I've got joy forever. The inheritance. Do you know what your inheritance is and that it is incorruptible? What is your inheritance as a child of God? You see, there's another whole doctrine in there, which once we get there, we will talk about, and oh man, what about the power of God, John? Isn't that wonderful? The power of God. We look at nature and we say acts of God. Yes? When do we say acts of God? When nature crosses the boundary, the natural boundary, and we get a disaster, and people say it's the power of God. You stand next to the sea where those mighty waves come, and they crash against the rocks, and they say that's the power of God. And I want to say to you this morning, they are wrong. You ain't seen the power of God yet. If you want to see an explanation of the power of God, it's all of that inclusive. If you can take the whole universe and you put it in a box and you explain it to me, then you've come not even close to a yittle or a dittle of the power of God. And still people are making jokes and fun of this God that we serve. Are you excited already? Because I am. This is the true love. This gives us life. This is what Peter writes. In that first statement, what I just read to you, and there's a little bit more to come, is one big statement. It is as if he goes like this. <gasps> Pulls up all of the air that he can get into that chest of his, and he just gives it all out. How wonderful is that? And then we read in verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, glory, and revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Oh man, that scripture gets me. I love that word. Whom you not seen, you love. Excuse me for a minute. I just want to turn off my phone because it makes all of these strange noises, which I don't want to particularly hear now. That's it. That won't happen again. So he says, whom we not see, we love. He says there in verse 8, whom having not seen love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy expressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. What is that, Peter? The salvation of your soul. Oh, we've got a song, man. 
He says, you see this part here, he says, with joy unspeakable. It's a joy unspeakable and full of glory, full of glory, full of glory. It's a joy unspeakable and full of glory, and the half has never yet been told. Was that in key? Thank you. You know what, I, I, I didn't care me, I was going to sing it anyway. <laughs> it's only the purest who will say, he's a little bit off key there. But you know, if we, when I sing it here, there's a sift. This is, by the way, no doctrine there, okay? But there's a sift between me and heaven, and God sits there and he says, man, that sounds like beautiful sound. He's in key with me, amen? But here we find it. He says, look at, look at all of these beautiful pearls that's in that scripture there. He talks about our faith, which is more precious than gold. And then he talks about things like, you know, receiving to be praised and honor, having not seen you love. And then he says, yet you don't seem you believe with this joy unspeakable. People ask me, oh, it's going tough in the world. Why do you always look so joyful and happy and smile and everything? Why? Because right in here, there's a joy unspeakable and it's it's full of glory. Nothing of this world can bring me down. No, because He is the one who gives us that joy. The joy unspeakable. And then He says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what it's all going about. That is why every Sunday I come here and I preach to you. That's why we set all of these things up. That's why we are here early, 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning we're here, while you are still getting out of your bed, getting ready for church. Why? Because it's about your soul, brother, sister. It's not about building an empire in the kingdom of God. We can't do that because he built his own kingdom. We can't build his kingdom. But Peter is writing this to us. Look at this quickly. He says in verse 10, of this salvation. Look at this now. He says, the end of your faith, this salvation of yourselves. And now he narrows it down. He says, this salvation which we experience, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied to the grace who would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, everybody say praise the Lord, but to us who are sitting here today, they were ministering the things which now have been restored, reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now I love this. Things which the angels desire to look into. Hallelujah. How privileged are we? We are living in the right time, in the best times. Somebody came to me one day, he says to me, oh, I would have loved to live in the days of Paul. I said, why? Oh, man, I could have sat there when Paul was preaching. I said, man, now we're living in the best times. No, no, no. We are living now when all of these things comes to fruition. And, and here it is. And I said earlier to you, the angels are looking into you. The angels are looking into the salvation. Well, well, how does that work, preacher? Well, he's looking at your life. They're looking how salvation changes you. Who, who believes that we need a change? Salvation changes you. What is salvation? The gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus. He changes you. Amen. That's what is happening. And you need to get joyful about that. 
Now, I love it here when he says the salvation of the prophets has been quiet. Listen, this is not salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. was no new doctrine to them. It's not something new. Because the old prophets inquired about this. You can read the Old Testament and you'll see all of that. So, when we start a new book and a new letter, we always look at three things. Okay? We see whom, for, uh, from whom was this, to whom and why. From whom and why. Okay? We see that in the first verses, the first two verses. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the who wrote this letter. And we'll get to him. We're going to talk about him today. And then he said, he wrote it to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you open up in your Bible in the book of James, James talks about the same thing. He says, to the twelve tribes who were scattered, talking to the Jews. And what I've done for you is I've showed you here on a map. When he wrote this down, he says the dispersion, it was like in the Old Testament, the Jews were dispersed when the nations came in and they captured them. They would take some of the Jews into their countries, into Babylon, all over the world dispersed. But now, obviously, he's writing to Christians, Christian Jews. And they were now dispersed. If he talks about Pontus, this is this area here. And, and, and remember, this is, uh, this is where Israel is, down here. So they were all dispersed into this place here called Asia today, Asia Minor. Pontus, if you look at it from Jerusalem's way, is the furthest way. Bithynia, Galatia is mentioned in there, Cappadocia, Asia, there's Ephesus. So all the Christians in there. So what would happen is he wrote this letter, and it, it might be Sulphanus who took this letter, and he would go from where he was. In fact, I reckon he was in Babylon. Uh, and he would take the letter, and he would go to all the churches here, and whoa, man, what an excitement when this man turns up there. And he goes, I've got a letter from Peter, the apostle Peter. I don't see the same excitement. And they can't wait. But wait a minute, it is uh, Wednesday. We don't go to church on Wednesday. It's tough to get a Bible study on a Thursday. And then to ask people to come and pray on a Friday. Oh, it's too much church. No, no, I reckon, if when once the, this, uh, uh, and again, this is my vision of it, okay? I reckon once the news started to go through that region there in, in Pontus and in Bithynia, we've got a letter from Peter. You know, I reckon they said, let's have church. Bring everybody together. Bring everybody together. Oh, but I'm busy working. Wow, man, this is a letter from the apostle. It's a letter from, it's fresh bread. It's the word of God. You should come every single Sunday like that, brother and sister, and say, give us that word. Give us the word. Give us the word of God. It's fresh. I promise you one thing. I'm not going to read other people's sermons from this pulpit because I believe that's old bread. Yes? So uh, he writes to all of these people and they take the letter there. So that is to whom. And then there is the why did he write this letter to those people dispersed there. Now may I just add at this point in time, I also believe that this letter was written to, listen very carefully now, to the people in Curram Downs, Melbourne, Australia. And if I preach this in uh, Auckland... 
I will say the same thing I say. I also believe that he, pre he wrote this letter to Auckland because it's applicable to you and me. Are we the dispersed? Yes, we are. I'm going to show it to you in a second. Why did he write this letter? Let's have a look. He wrote this letter to comfort Christians. Are you a Christian? If you're a Christ follower, yes, you call yourself a Christian. I want to say a born-again Christian, but let's not go into that right now. He says, to comfort Christians who, because of their situation, are no longer accepted in their cultural world. Is that explaining you? Is that describing you? I hope so. It, it was for them. Those Christians were not acceptable anymore in their cultural world. This is why they were scattered all over. They were pushed out. They were persecuted. They were not accepted in their culture anymore. Now, I'm going to show you my Picasso drawing, okay? I've got an iPad, and I've got a nice Apple pen, and I was sitting there, and I was reading, and I was taken away by this, and, I, you know, I just started drawing, and I thought, man, how can I portray this to the church? Now, bear with me, okay? I'm not a Picasso, but that's how it looks. And it's going to make sense. I'm going to explain it to you. When I, when I thought about this, and I thought why he wrote this letter, they are not part of their cultural world, it dawned upon me. You see, how we used to grow up, how I certainly grew up as a young boy, was that this is the Word of God. And culture was sitting on the outside. And what culture was doing, culture was wrapping itself around the Word of God. Correct me if I'm wrong. Because, dear friends, that the Word of God was giving everything to the culture there were morals that people were living by. And those morals came from the Word of God, and culture came to the Word of God, and they grabbed those morals, and we lived in a moral world. Am I right or wrong? You didn't have so much stuff and rubbish and filth going on in the world as you see right now. But you see what changed. And the days that we are living in, the dispersed of Christ are living in, because you and I are not accepted in this culture anymore. You stand up in your workplace today and you preach Jesus Christ and they will throw you out. Am I right or wrong? You go out and you stand and preach from, from a box in the city. You stand up there and you say, I proclaim Jesus Christ. You know what people do? They'll just keep on walking. But there's a guy busking away over there and he sings filthy song and they crowd at him. Why? Because of this particular thing that you see right in front of your eyes. There's a shift that took place. You see, culture is not wrapping itself around the Word of God anymore. Instead, culture has filled that role now there and the Word of God is pushed outside. And you see what happens here, dear friends, is culture is now dictating to the Word of God how we want to use the Word of God. This is what we're living in. Culture is now coming to the Word of God and saying to the Word of God, that's not acceptable to us anymore. You need to change. Hence, they are changing the Word of God these days. And let me frighteningly shock you these days that the church is busy to move on the same path as culture. It is to these people that he writes. Now let me ask you, is that you and me portrayed in that little Picasso of mine? That's us. It's to comfort Christians who because of their situation are no longer accepted in their cultural world. 
You see, in contrast, it, it, it is a contrast between what they had been and what they now have become because of their obedience in Christ. You were part of the culture. Come on, I was when I was a young man. I was there with all of my mates, man. And we go, what is this thing about the, the gospel? Who wants to go to church? Who wants to read the Bible? Who wants to pray? I was studying. I was a young man studying to become a teacher. There was this small little skinny fella coming every time around. And he goes, oh, John, you need to come to your Bible meeting. I go, where, where, where are you? Look at you, man. Look at me. I'm strong. I'm playing rugby, man. I'm, I'm strong. Look at this little fella. You want to tell me I want to come to your Bible study? I was part of that culture. I'm saying this, you know, one day out of frustration because he keeps on pounding, pounding. He keeps, Brett, he keeps on, every time he sees me, he says, are you coming to the Bible study? But I told you yesterday I'm not going to go. I was part of the culture. You see, my world revolved around the culture. I, the Word of God was outside, but his world revolves around the Word of God. And one day, look, I say this out of shame, because, you know, I had a short fuse back of mine, and believe it or not, I did. But this little fella came up to me, and he was going on and on about it. And I pulled him up, and I said, do not talk to me about this. Oh, I thought that would say it, right? Didn't hurt him. Only his eyes was as big as that in his head. Well, and behold, the next week, I came back from the weekend, nice weekend, living in the culture, here come a potties. His name was Potties. He comes up to me and says, are you coming to the Bible study now? <laughs> oh man, but when I did go, not to the Bible study, but when I went to Jesus and he saved my soul, the, you know, the contrast there was so clear. What I had been, I'm no more. I lost a lot of friends. But it's a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen? Each one of you have got their own testimony. This is why he wrote this. They were now persecuted. And listen, let me tell you something about persecution. It will do one or two things. It will either grow you or it will make you better. Persecution and trouble in your life that you come around is either going to grow you or it's going to make you better. Now, this applies to every single thing, not only persecution. You can say, yeah, as a child of God, I'm growing. But what if there's something? What if somebody shakes your case? Okay, that's the way I want to put it. Somebody upsets you. They say something that's really offending to you. You can do one of two things. It's either going to grow you or it's going to make you better. It's so true, isn't it? Told you we're going to preach the truth here. And if it hurts, you can say, Aina, that's the South African word which says, ouch. But if it doesn't hurt, say, praise the Lord that I can learn to grow. The response will determine the results. Uh, if you look at uh, verse 6, it says, In this you greatly rejoice. Now th through a little while need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The people that he wrote to went through various trials. They've got a choice that through these trials they're going to grow or they're going to grow better. Who knows that you're going to go through trials this year? Things are going to happen to you that you don't like. It's going to do one of two things. It's going to make you grow or it's going to make you better. You, you, listen, there's going to things this year that you want that you're not going to get. I want that thing. You're not going to get it. And what's, what's going to happen? It's either going to make you grow or it's going to make you better. And 
The response will determine your result. If it's going to make you grow, you will grow better and you will be able to get over this. But if you're going to become bitter, you are sitting right at that point. You can't get any further. Now, let's quickly have a look and see whom this is from. This is from the Apostle Peter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was a man who was appointed by Jesus Christ himself. I want to make this distinction. Paul calls himself an apostle. Peter calls himself an apostle. He was not a self-proclaimed apostle. He was not a self-proclaimed apostle. Jesus Christ himself had to appoint these apostles. An apostle means he's one sent with an order, a message. And the message that Christ gave them is the message of the gospel. It's the establishment of the church. An apostle also had to be a first-hand witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ appeared, he appeared to Peter. That validated that he was an apostle. I'm going to come to the point why I say all of this. They had to see him physically, and they had to be taught by him physically. For three years, Peter spent time with Jesus and received gifts and performed miracles when Christ wanted it. These days you get a lot of people who call themselves apostles, but they are self-proclaimed apostles. And I'm telling you with all of, listen, listen to me very carefully, I'm not poking jokes at them or anything, but their claim is nothing. It's a, it's a zero on a contract. It means nothing. If they walk through these, these walls and they go, oh, apostle so-and-so is here to me, it's just a person. It's not the same apostle as Peter and Paul and all these people were. This is the qualification of an apostle. You say, but what is the function of the apostle today in the church? Well, let me tell you, they are the foundation. If you go to Colossians, he says the apostles and prophets were the foundation. They were laying the foundation for the church here. You say, but people are going today out and they establish churches. Yes, that's the work of evangelism today. So these men was appointed by Jesus Christ himself. He, he declared Jesus to be, he was the one, the, Peter was the one who declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. How wonderful is it? Think about this man. Matthew 16, 15, he said to them, but who do you, do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a privilege for him to be able to say those words, inspired by the Holy Spirit. You are the Christ. The Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, and Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Isn't Peter a great man? Would you say? How blessed is he? Peter. Look, he says it also there. He gave him a new name. In Matthew 16, verse 18, And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What did he say? He says, Peter, that means a small little pebble. It means a small little thing. You can actually say it's like grain of, of, of sand. And he says, your name will be a rock. He gave him a new name. Peter is a wonderful person, isn't he? How privileged is he? You see, he's a fisherman, lowly esteemed by society, like sand that you walk over. And 
Jesus comes one day and he picks up this little, if you can just go and do it on the beach this afternoon, the smallest little pickles, little sand that you can pick up, little rocky there, little rocky. And he says, this is who you are, but this is what I'm going to make you a rock. I will make you a rock. Now, the Roman Catholics, unfortunately, took this scripture as Peter being the Pope. It's not true. He's not the rock. He says, Peter, but there's a Petra, which means a mountain range, and that is Jesus Christ. But look how wonderful it is. He was called a pillar in the church. Galatians chapter 2 verse 9, And when James and Cephas, which was Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived to the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and not to the circumcised. There was Paul writing about Peter, James, and John. A pillar in, in the church. Wow, man, that's wonderful to be named in the Bible as a pillar of the church. Are you a pillar of the church? No, these men were called pillar of the church. He was part of the inner circle. The inner circle was Peter, James, and John. And being part of the inner circle, they had the privilege to go into certain areas where other people didn't go. Where was that? Well, first of all, when we think about the daughter of Jairus, you know what happened? The, the woman walked through the crowd. She touches Jesus. He says, who touched me? The disciple says, oh, there's so many. But he says, no, no, somebody touched me. When that happened, there's a message that comes on to this, to this uh, ruler. and says, your daughter has died. And Jesus says, no, she's not dying. She's only sleeping. But when he went into the room, who was with him? Peter, James, and John. Peter is a wonderful man, would you say, wouldn't you? He had so many privileges. Not only that, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew 17, verse 1, he says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And foolishly, Peter, he says, Lord, I can see now. Can I build you some hats here? Can I build a small little house for you? But nevertheless, he was there. So when he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, all we can see now is this wonderful man, don't we? He's in the inner circle. He's a pillar of the church. His name was changed from a little pebble into a rock. Man, he, this is a great guy. And he's got it all. He's got it all, we would say. Now, Peter was born and he grew up in Bethsaida and he moved and lived in Capernaum, if you follow him through the Bible. And those two cities there was both next to the Sea of Galilee where he became a fisherman and he started, you know, think about this. He became a fisherman. He, he grew up as a small little boy there, played around there, had a few friends, started fishing, go with dad on the boat, loved the job. Then he got his own boat. Then his brothers, and then he started a small little business. They would go out by day. They would catch fish. They will come onto the shore, and they will give these fish off to the people and sell it. Good business. Very good businessman, one would say. Very good business that he drew up. But I want you to understand one thing about him. He was a Jewish boy. And as a Jewish boy, he would have grown up studying the Torah. That's what all Jewish boys do. They study the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then when they come to an age of 13, 12, 13, they have what they call their bar mitzvah. 
bar mitzvah. You know what a bar mitzvah is? That is when a Jewish young boy becomes a young man. And at this point in time, the rabbis, the rabbis were the ones who taught them the scriptures, the first five books. And by this time, they will see there's a few bright ones in this group, and they will pick them, hand-pick the few ones out of the group, and these few ones will become their disciples and follow them wherever they go. These ones will become scribes and Pharisees. But what about the rest? They were not the ones chosen. They went to school. They taught the Torah. They know all about God. But if the rabbis didn't pick them, then from that point when they had their bar mitzvah, they go into their work life. So in this case, Peter, what happened? He gone into his work life. He started to work with his dad. He became a fisherman. You say... Well, is this important to know? Yes, it is. Because if you go into Acts chapter 4 verse 12, you learn that when they started speaking to the crowds, the following happened. He says, Nor is there salvation in any other. This is what Peter preached. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw, listen, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they re realized that they had been with Jesus. Look, let me tell you one thing. Being with Jesus makes you smart. <laughs> There's no doctrine behind that. This is what these men found out. Now, when people read that, they say, that shows that Peter was an uneducated per person. He was uneducated. You know, how wonderful is it? No, he wasn't. Peter was educated. John was educated. They studied in a school, in the, in, in the synagogues, up until the age of 13. They studied the Torah. They could write. They could read. They knew the Scriptures. You say, but why would these people then say they are uneducated and all of these things? Because these were the Pharisees looking at them. They didn't go to the university. They didn't go to the Pharisee university. Plus, they were talking about something which these people didn't want to talk about, and that was salvation. Because Peter says there is no salvation any other. There is no other name under heaven given to you by which we must be saved. Who is that name? Jesus. Oh, Look at them, they're untrained and uneducated. They're not trained in, uh, in, in the Pharisee school. That's why. You see, the culture determined what is acceptable for the world. These men were not. They smell like fishermen. They come off the boats, they smell. And if you think about fishing in the sun, what happens if you fish in the sun the whole day? You're pulling those nets. You're pulling those nets. What happens with your hands? Come on. You get calluses on it. Oh, there's somebody praying there, and you want to reach out a hand of, of, of worship with this person. The Pharisee comes with his nice clothing. He pulls out his hand. He shakes your hand, and as he touches his hand, you go, Oh, that's a very soft hand and a very educated hand. Peter comes over there, and he, he reaches out his hand, and he shakes your hand, and you go, Oh, what a hard hand. No, no, our philosophy say we listen to the soft hands. This is what is going all about here. These men worked hard. They were educated. They were trained. This was Peter that we're talking about. Uh, Simon met Jesus his, uh, through his brother, I, Andrew. 
Andrew was the first one who found Jesus. He's, and, and this is a proof that they were educated. Look at this. John 1 verse 40. One of the two were heard John speaking and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon, which is Peter, and said to him, we found the Messiah. Why would they be looking for the Messiah if they didn't study the Old Testament? He comes, Peter, we found the Messiah. The one that we read about in the Torah and the Old Testament, we found him. And, he, and, and then, uh, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So this is a great, perfect man, would we say? Peter. But he was not perfect. And this is where we need to learn a lesson today. I just showed you the nice side of Peter. But who knows that a person has got two sides? If you come to church, we see your nice side. And you say, oh man, just wait until you see him in the workplace. I often say to people, and then I see people with children, their eyes go like this when I say this. I just want to spend time with your children, you know. You say, how's mommy and daddy when this happens? Oh, you should see mommy going off when that happens. You should hear what daddy say when that happens. I'm not spying on your children, by the way, okay? All I'm trying to say, there's two signs. Some people come to church and they go, oh, you know, it's a group. Oh, man, what happens when you just go around the corner? Well, Peter was not perfect, friends. Let's have a quick look at this. He was a strong-willed person. Is that you? Oh, man, I can put up, man. I'm strong-willed sometimes, man. I was a strong-willed young man. When I was a young man, if I went away, I'll go that way. Go, no, 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 my dad said, no, watch out for the, dad, I know, I know, no, that's it, I'm doing my, then, I, then my dad says, look, I want you to do A, but in my mind, I say, I'm going to do B. That was me, and that was Peter. Look at Peter here, Matthew 16, 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. What happened at this particular place is that Jesus said that he was going to die. He's going to die for them. And then Peter took him aside. He says, no, you shall not happen to you. He rebuked him, actually. But then uh, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. What was he? He was strong-willed. He says, no, not your way, but my way. And we do that often, don't we? You see, Peter wasn't this bright, shining guy. He needed to lose that strong worldliness of his. He needed to become soft on that. Not only that, he was an impulsive person. Is that, is that you? Are you impulsive? Am I the only person with my hand up in the area? Me and Peter standing here next to me. Peter standing right there. He said, yeah, yeah, no, no, John. I'm, I was impulsive as well. Don't tell him about it. Man, geez, whoa, what happened? Show us. Well, John 18 verse 10. Then uh, Simon Peter, having a sword, uh, drew it out, and the high priest's servant, and he cut off his ear, the servant named Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into yourself. Shall I not drink the cup which my father is giving you? An impulsive movement. The, 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 the soldiers came up, they wanted to arrest Jesus, and Peter goes, man, I will sort this out of my sword. Impulsive move. We do that often. We make decisions when we are emotional. I'll say that again. We make decisions when we are emotional. We don't. And if your emotional decision happens like that, and you know what? We make a decision like that, and then time has gone just quickly, and you go, oh, that was the wrong decision. 
and you feel terrible. Just imagine how Peter must have felt when Jesus said those words. And then Jesus do a wonderful thing. He picks up the ear and he, he heals the guy. Oh, why did I do that? Oh, goodness gracious. I shouldn't have done that. He was an impulsive person. Would you choose him now to be an apostle of Jesus Christ? Oh, now I go, geez, you know what? He's not qualifying. What about impatient? Is that you? Is that you, impatient? Thank you. Now we've got a few more hands. Peter, we've got more hands here, man. <laughs> it's not only me and you now, it's, there's a few more. Oh, impatient. That's one thing that really rocks our world, isn't it? God. They, they, they put up, you know, what is, is it uh, McDonald's? If you don't get your burger within two minutes, it's for free. <laughs> We can get up there, and, and that doesn't even structure people anymore. They just want to get through the queue. Impatience. But it happened to this man as well. Matthew 14, 28, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you to the water. So he said to him, come. And Peter, that had come down the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, and he cried out and saying, Lord, save me. Why do I say that is impatience? Why would I say that's a sign of impatience? Yeah, do you believe his faith was strong there to, to, to be able to do that? To, he, he didn't grow through that. You know, he, was, he wanted to be the first. I can load so many things onto this. He was impatient. He was all about himself. Is that, is that a man, would you say now, who is an apostle who would write us a letter that we're going to listen to? Oh, when I said he was a pillar, everybody say, Yay, Peter, now. Oh, this impatient guy. Is he going to be impatient with me? What about unreliable? Is that you? <laughs> oh, Peter, let's have a look. <laughs> unreliable. I mean, we sometimes so unreliable in many ways. But when it had to count, he was so unreliable. In Matthew 26, 33, Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, the night before the rooster crows, you will die, deny me three times. Did he? Was he reliable? Let me tell it to you this. When Jesus was teaching, there were 12 disciples. When they caught him and took him to the cross, how many were there? One, John. John was there. Where was Peter? Oh, Peter was sitting there with a fire. There's this young girl coming to him saying, you are one of them. He says, no. No, I'm not one of them. Telling a lie. See, he was a liar as well. You see, I can go on. Any liars? No, I won't go there. So let's finish this morning to look at five things that we can learn from Peter. Okay, just five things that Peter teaches us. Now if I say, you know, when I started telling all of the good things, he's a pillar, his name was changed and all of these things, we all said, hallelujah, Peter, you're a great apostle. When I showed you the other side of the guy, you go, jeez, man, if he applied for that job today in the church to be an apostle, and they put those negative things of him down, I said, nah, nah, out. You're not an apostle of this church. By the way, I said to you there's no apostles today, but here we go. But you, you can't be on your worship team, Peter. He won't make it. He won't make it in a lot of churches with that CV. So five lessons. First of all, through Jesus you will overcome your fear. Learn this this morning from him. Peter found courage in following Christ. He did walk on the water. Yes, I know we said it was a sign of impatience, but he did walk on the water. 
He had his eyes on Jesus, remember? It's when he took his eyes off Jesus that he went down. But he overcame it. At that point in time, fear grabbed him, and he, and he started sinking. But man, the day when he stood up in front of that crowd after, after the Pentecost, he preached to the people as a man with, with no fear. And, and you will overcome your fear only in Jesus. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, he says, There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect. So if you've got fear, it's Jesus Christ. The second thing we learned this morning is Jesus forgives unfaithfulness. He forgives unfaithfulness. You remember when he denied Christ three times? Yet, what did Jesus do? He forgave him. How wonderful is it that we serve a forgiving Father, a forgiving... 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. And also, Jesus is patiently teaching us. Is this good lessons we learned from Peter? If Peter stands here this morning, he can tell us a whole sermon about how Jesus patiently taught him. He needed correction over and over and over again. How many times have you gone into sermons and you sit there and you go, Oh man, that's me. Oh, that's me. And then you go away and you try to be a better Christian the week and next Sunday you come back and there's something else. You can't be a better Christian. Cast it onto Jesus. He will patiently teach you. And then Jesus sees our end from our beginning. How wonderful is this? He sees our end from our beginning. Peter was a fisherman, you remember that. Yet Jesus saw him as a rock and a pillar in the church. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, we saw this last week. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you see Peter sitting there next to the fire denying Christ, and you say, oh, that's a hopeless situation. He will never return. You know what Jesus did? He then took him and he forgave him his unfaithfulness. And then he, he, because he saw in him, he saw what he was going to be. The apostle who writes to us this letter. And then finally this morning, Richard, if you can just call him on for the music. Finally this morning, Jesus used unlike heroes. I want you to think about this. Peter was a fisherman. Why didn't Jesus go and he, he grabbed, you know, the, the chief priest, the man who knows everything? Or maybe the man who could stand here and he can have the most beautiful oratory, vocal capability to capture a crowd and to speak the most highly words and impress the people. You look at Paul. People said to Paul, he's weak. He was, I reckon, a little bit shorter than me, bald as me, runny eyes the whole time, and not a very good speaker, but yet God chose him. Look at Peter, a fisherman. If you go to the university, you might find so many people who's way more better equivalent. They can speak. They can speak high words and thou, thou, read on, and it's going on. But he chose fishermen. He chose Peter. Romans eleven twenty eight for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You know, this is why I love it. God's looking just for a heart of availability. He wants you to be available, and He will make you able. He will make you able. 
And this is in this church. I'm looking at people and you're sitting there and you go, yo, preacher, I can never preach like you. I don't want you to preach like me. Have you imagined that? If I go, look, just for a break for you guys, this next Sunday I'm going to put this person on so you get, and he stands up and he tries to copycat me, just preach just like me. You're going to say the first thing is fake. Is it right? No, he wants you to be just you. And he will use you. And he will change you. And he will accomplish through you. And look, he used unlike heroes. And I know, and I know there's a lot of people in the world who's got a lot of people in the churches who is their heroes. They hold them up with high esteem. And I'm not trying to break down, a, I say respect somebody, but give God the glory. Respect them. I respect a lot of people for what they study. Somebody studies through the scriptures, man, they get a doctorate in really studying this. I respect that, but I give God the glory. Now, it's not to say that that person who's got that doctorate is going to come and stand up here and preach the sermon that Peter preached. It might be somebody who's just working somewhere, and you know what? He's just got a love for Christ. He's got a relationship, and God uses him. What am I saying? God can use you. So if I wrap it all up, here's a man, Peter. We looked at his good side, and we looked at him not so good, but God used him. What confidence are you taking out of that? I'm saying to you, if you're sitting here this morning, you say, oh, Lord, I never know. You know, I've done that big, terrible thing in my life. All he wants you to come is to come and repent. Bow your knee to the cross and say, Lord, I please forgive me. I'm a sinner. You know what he will do? He will forgive you. And then he's going to start changing into the image of his son. Amen? Let's pray.